everybody, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Jake's Takes podcast at Oklahoma State University. I'm your host, Jake Ferraro, and today we got a lot to talk about, including Oklahoma State's big win at home against Baylor, top 25 teams in college football that are about to duke it out this weekend that are playing each other, my traditional NFL picks for week five of the regular season. I will also talk about the NBA preseason coming back on October 4th. I will also talk about Luis Rojas out as Mets manager. And last, it was voted on on my Instagram story. I will give my opinion on what I think are the top 10 worst free agent signings in NFL history. So let's get right to it. I talked about it right from the start. Oklahoma State came into their game against Baylor last Saturday, ranked number 19. And Baylor was ranked number 21. And the Cowboys came out victorious, winning 24-14 at home. The boon was rocking in Stillwater. It was awesome. Simply awesome to be there and hear the boon erupt. Well, the game started off really good. They took the opening drive, and Jalen Warren got into the end zone, up 7-0. And then up until Rashad Owens caught a receiving touchdown, it was basically a stalemate. Spencer Sanders had... Three interceptions in this game, 13 of 23 for 182 yards, one passing touchdown. He did have 76 yards rushing, but man, those first two interceptions were brutal. I called them as soon as he threw the ball. I saw the coverage on the field. I'm like, this guy's going to get picked, and I called them both. The third one, I don't know how much blame you want to put into him on that because the ball did get tipped up into the air, and it ended up getting picked off. But, you know, the first two were definitely definitely on him but another game that was phenomenal by Warren 36 carries 125 yards two touchdowns and big news for him he ended up winning big 12 newcomer of the week this guy continues to get better he's rising up to the occasion and Tay Martin another guy rising to the occasion he had six catches for 110 yards his third 100-yard game receiving this season, and just, I'll tell you this, the offense was just so predictable in this game. The Cowboys ran the ball 59 times against the Bears. They did end up having 219 yards rushing, but, you know, when you're playing some top schools in the nation, whether that be Alabama, Georgia, Iowa, Oklahoma, Ohio State, your offense just can't get predictable like that. You know, there was times Baylor, it looked like from the field or up into the, in the stands, they were lining up eight, nine, ten men in the box. They were almost expecting the Cowboys to run the football. And, you know, you just can't have that. You can't be so predictable on offense. I understand you got quarterback problems, but you just can't run the ball 59 times. Hey, at the same time, though, I feel like, that I can't complain because we ended up winning this ball game at home against Baylor. And, you know, you have to be satisfied with the win. Oklahoma State's defense was able to hold Baylor quarterback Bohannon to under 50% passing. And Cowboys did get lit up for over 100 yards rushing. They gave up 107, unlike the past two games against Boise State. And Kansas State, they allowed 62 rushing yards combined in both of those games. But this game, they gave up 107. Malcolm Rodriguez flying again 
all over the field. I must say, I was losing my mind when the Cowboys had it inside the five and four consecutive timeouts were called. Baylor had to burn their final timeout with the substitution problems, and the fans were rowdy. The students were rowdy. I was yelling, Mike Gundy, I've never seen him so angry in my time here at OSU because obviously I've, I haven't been here that long to really know what he's like to get mad. You know, obviously the press conference goes down in history back in 2007, but he was aggravated and when Jalen Warren, you know, scored that touchdown with just a little over two minutes to go, that was the loudest I ever heard the boom this year, and it felt awesome, and it feels so good to come in here with a smile on my face, knowing that the boys are 5-0. and Oklahoma State will not be playing this weekend. They are on the bye week for week six in college football. They are now ranked number 12 in the AP poll for the top 25. I guess that's what can happen when teams like Arkansas, Notre Dame, Oregon, all lose, you know? Like I said, in the beginning, I thought maybe Heist was 15. I was going to be fair. But when you're 5-0 and and you beat two top 25 teams, you know, you get some respect. You truly, truly do. Another defensive player that stood out was Colin Oliver. He won National True Freshman of the Week with six tackles, three tackle for losses, and two sacks. You know, obviously, Malcolm Rodriguez is the main guy on the Cowboys' defense that everybody talks about, but big props for Oliver winning National True Freshman of the Week. So we have, for Week 6, we have one, two, three, four games with two teams that are ranked in the top 25 on Saturday. We got the number 13 Arkansas Razorbacks. They will travel to Ole Miss to play them, who are ranked number 17. Ole Miss is a six-and-a-half favorite. And obviously the big one with rivalries, (laughs) Red River Showdown. Number six, Oklahoma against number 21, Texas. This game will not be played in Austin, it will be played at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. Both of those games are at 11 a.m. Oklahoma is actually a minus three favorite. And then we have Georgia, number two ranked against number 22 Auburn at Auburn. That game will be played at 2.30. Georgia is 14 and a half point favorites. In my opinion, the game of the day, number four Penn State at number three Iowa. Iowa is a two-point favorite, and that game will be played at three. This is a good time for the Cowboys to sit back and watch because I don't know how the AP will look at it if Texas somehow is able to beat Oklahoma. You know, will Oklahoma get out of the top 15? Does Texas jump into the top 15? Could they jump into the top 10? I don't know. So this weekend for college football will definitely be big. The big one of the biggest games I thought over the weekend was Notre Dame losing. And I I did like the Fighting Irish against Cincinnati, but Notre Dame it always feels that they are so hyped every year just cuz they're Notre Dame and then 
You put them into a game against a big team like Cincinnati, who has played very well over the past couple of years, and they can't win the game. It's simple as that. So moving on to my NFL picks of the week for week five. Week four, I was nine and seven, unfortunately. Was hoping to be a little bit better. I will do my traditional picks and I will do my upset of the week, my lock, cover, and over-under pick. Last week, I was two of four. I hit on I hit on Buffalo with the lock and I hit the over in the Cowboys-Panthers game. I was wrong about the Titans covering and the Lions beating the Bears in Chicago. So let's hope for a better week this week. Thursday night football, we got the Los Angeles Rams at the Seattle Seahawks. Based on the spreads and based on the money lines, this would be my upset pick because Seattle, when I looked at FanDuel, I am recording this Tuesday, October 5th at 10.22 Central Time. Seattle was underdog at home, which I found shocking. So I am going to pick the Hawks to beat the Rams. Over at London, 8.30 Central Time, we have the New York Jets and Atlanta Falcons. This will count as a home game for the Atlanta Falcons. I think the Falcons will respond. They should have won that game against the football team, but they just can't hold on to winning games late into the fourth quarter. But you ask ask me, I do think they bounce back. Now for the 12 o'clock games. First up, we got the Philadelphia Eagles at the Carolina Panthers. I thought the Panthers played better late in the game against the Cowboys, but you can't be down by three possessions in the third quarter and expect to come back and win the game. You just can't do that. But I think the Panthers will bounce back at home against the Philadelphia Eagles. Next up, (laughs) I'm just going to go through this very, very quickly. We got the Miami Dolphins at Tampa play Tampa Bay to play the Buccaneers. This is my lock. Take Tampa Bay. This Miami, you know what? I'm a Miami fan. We should just simply say, you know what? We're not going to show up to the game. Let's just take a bye. Let's just take two weeks off for the bye or have this week count for the bye. And just, just put in the L column. We're just not going to show up and play the game. That's how I feel about this week. That, uh, And then I actually, before I come on the air, I found out that they finally traded Jakeem Grant, I think to the Chicago Bears. Blessing. I, I couldn't take this guy anymore. Next up, we got the New Orleans Saints, who got upset at home by the New York Giants. They traveled to FedEx Field to play the Washington football team. I know Washington's got to be very, very confident, knowing they just had a comeback win in Atlanta, but I think the Saints will bounce back on the road. Next up, we got the Tennessee Titans against the Jacksonville Jaguars. I'm going to take the Titans. I definitely think that they should bounce back against the Jaguars in Jacksonville. The Detroit Lions go on the road to U.S. Bank Stadium to play the Minnesota Vikings. I thought the Vikings really should have won that game against the Cleveland Browns last week. You know, the defense played pretty good, but the offense just couldn't get anything going. But if the Chicago Bears can put up points against the Lions, I think the Vikings will definitely do that. So I definitely will take Minnesota at home against the Lions. Next up, the Broncos came out of week four with a loss to the Baltimore Ravens at home, but they go to Pittsburgh 
to play the Steelers at Heinz Field. I definitely think that the Broncos will bounce back. It definitely looks like it is definitely coming to an end for Ben Roethlisberger playing in Pittsburgh. I think the age is finally hitting him. I think the Denver defense will be all over Roethlisberger. So I like the Broncos at Heinz Field. Next up, the New England Patriots go on the road to Houston. New England played Tampa Bay better than anybody thought they would with Tom Brady coming back to Foxborough as a member of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I think New England will bounce back. I don't see them losing two straight games and playing Houston. I think you got a layup this week. So I like the Pats in Houston. And last for the 12 o'clock games, we got the Green Bay Packers going on the road to play the 3-1 and Cincinnati Bengals. Yes, you heard that correctly. The 3-1 and Cincinnati Bengals. Who would have thought that before the year started, that the Bengals would be 3-1? and But I got to go with the pack. I got to go with the Cheeseheads spoiling Hootay Nation in Cincinnati. Now for the 3 o'clock games. We got, for the first one, the Chicago Bears at Las Vegas to play the Raiders. I am taking the Raiders. I definitely think they'll bounce back after losing on Monday night to the Chargers. Very good game here. The Cleveland Browns will travel to L.A. They will play the Chargers. I do like Cleveland, actually. They got a big road win against the Vikings in Minnesota. You know, they got to play with the road warrior mentality. They play Kansas City good on the road in week one. I think they'll play the Chargers good, and I think they will come out with the win. I do. Next up for 3 o'clock game, we got an old NFC East rivalry. We got the New York football Giants at the Dallas Cowboys. This will be my cover of the week. I am going to take the Cowboys for my picks for the week to win the game. But when I looked at 1.30 in the morning, the Giants were a plus seven underdog. For my cover of the week, I like the Giants plus seven. Last year in Arlington, Texas, when the Cowboys and Giants played, the Cowboys only won by three. And then in week 17, the Giants beat them. So anytime the Giants and Cowboys get together, Giants will always bring out their best game. So I do like the Giants to cover plus seven. NFC West rivalry showdown. We got the San Francisco 49ers going on the road to play the Arizona Cardinals, the only undefeated team that is left. Cardinals 4-0, Kyler Murray, phenomenal year so far. And I got to roll with the cards at home. Sunday Night Football, a rematch of last year's AFC Championship game. Same setting, same two teams. The Buffalo Bills go on the road to Arrowhead to play Kansas City. And I like the Chiefs. I think after beating the Eagles, I think the Chiefs are starting to find themselves after losing two straight games to Baltimore and the Chargers. Buffalo had it easy in week four. They played the Texans at home. So I think the Chiefs will definitely give them a warm welcome back to Arrowhead Stadium. And for Monday Night Football, we got the Indianapolis Colts going on the road to M&T Bank Stadium to play the Baltimore Ravens. This will be my over-under pick. When I looked in the morning, it was set at 47. I like the under. 
I do. The Colts defense played really good. I understand it's Jacoby Brissett and the Miami Dolphins, but Colts defense played pretty good. Colts offense still looks like it's struggling. The Ravens defense played pretty good against the Broncos. The Broncos do have good defense, and the Colts do have a good defense. I still believe that. So I do like the under in the Ravens-Colts game. I am taking the Ravens for the win. NBA preseason returned Monday, October 4th. Some of the biggest news for the preseason. I thought it was good to see this. LaMarcus Aldrich returned to the basketball court after having medical problems last year when he was with the Nets. But now Aldrich is back. I definitely think this will help the Nets make a late push for trying to win a championship. You know, you never want to see a guy in any sport on any team have to sit out because of health problems. But the fact that Aldrich is back, I definitely think this gives the Nets a little late push. And I still say, man, who knows, you know, if Aldrich was playing in the Milwaukee series, maybe the series would have turned out different. It, maybe it would have. Other news for the NBA, I'm gonna, I'm only going to cover the October 4th games because I'm recording this October 5th and this episode may not be uploaded up until tomorrow or Thursday. So I unfortunately will not be able to talk about the preseason events that happen for October 5th. I just want to clarify that right now. Other news for the NBA, the Raptors were able to return to play at the 6. It was their first game back in Toronto since February 28th, 2020. That's what, 580 plus days, whatever it is. It's good to see the fans back in the sixth, back in the six. I said six by accident. I apologize for that. But you know what? It's great to see. It really is. You know, if the Raptors were able to play in Toronto last season instead of playing in Tampa Bay, maybe they could have gotten a eight, seven seed, maybe a six seed, could have had a playing game tournament or something like that. But Whenever you're not playing at home, your your home games are in Tampa Bay. It doesn't feel like you're home. So I feel like they played the entire season on the road last year. It was very unfair for the Raptors. Two big dunks that happened. Jason Tatum posterized Wendell Carter Jr. And first overall pick in the 2020 NBA draft, Anthony Edwards ended up dunking on Brandon Ingram early in the game. And for my Miami Heat... Two big things happen. Kyle Lowry made his heat debut. First shot, makes a three. Can't start off any better than that. It was absolutely perfect. And I definitely think he will be a better connection with Bam Adebayo for the alley-oops than Goran Dragic. And Tyler Hero, he ended up scoring 14 straight points to end the first quarter. The Miami Heat played the Atlanta Hawks, and the Heat ended up winning that game. So that helped me put a smile on my face. You know, I know it's only preseason and my New Jersey Devils are 4-0 in preseason as of right now. And I, I really don't pay attention to preseason that much because, hey, it's preseason. It's not counting for an actual regular season game. But, you know, for Tyler Hero to score 14 straight, that's good. You know, we definitely need a big year out of him this season. And I think Kyle Lowry is definitely going to fit perfect with the Miami Heat. You asked me, are the Heat better contenders this season than 
in 2020 in the NBA bubble. I really do. I I actually think they do, and Bam Adebayo will definitely be having a better year this year. I think I think it could be a career year. Jimmy Butler will always be Jimmy Butler. We still got Duncan Robinson who can shoot threes, and Kyle Lowry is a much better acquisition for the team to try and win instead of Goran Dragic. I loved Goran for all he did since he got traded here back in the 14-15 season, but Lowry will be better for Miami. For baseball, the MLB playoffs are starting with the wild card games this week, and then the division series will happen. Exciting time. Always love playoff baseball. You know, I don't know how many people would agree with me on this, but I really did enjoy last year's MLB playoff format with the eight teams instead of the five teams. I really did. You know, you can have that first series best of three. You can. And whoever is the higher seed, they can have home field advantage throughout that whole series. That's perfectly fine with me. And then you do your traditional NLD. ALDS, NLDS, best of five, the LCS, best of seven, obviously World Series, best of seven as well. I really did enjoy that idea because of the shortened 2020 season, playing only 60 games. I wanted the MLB to bring it back this year, but obviously they're going back to their old ways. Playoff baseball is so exciting. Last year's playoff season I thought was better than what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be very lame and very boring, no fans in attendance, but the NLCS with Atlanta and the Dodgers, they decided to let the fans come in for the NLCS and then obviously the World Series, but it's going to be back, playoff baseball back, 100% capacity, fans roaring. They make a difference, man, in the playoffs. When you got your fans rocking, you get a big hit. Home run, fans go crazy. It definitely adds some extra motivation and a push. So playoff baseball is back. But sticking to what I talked about earlier, what I was going to talk about, Luis Rojas is out as manager of the New York Mets. Now, the New York Mets did say they will keep they will keep Rojas in the organization, but they don't know what they'll keep him as, whether that be a scout or maybe a hitting coach or maybe an assistant to the front office. I don't know. But they still they said they'll still keep him. He was very liked. He was very respected in the clubhouse. But you know what? I think it was predictable that he could possibly lose his job in 2021. This is the second straight Mets manager that only lasted two years in Flushing. Mickey Calloway lasted two years from 2018 to 2019, and Rojas, two years, 2020 and 2021. I thought it really was a little unfair for Rojas when he was announced as Mets manager because he got thrown right into the fire when the Astros cheating scandal broke out. They The Mets originally had Carlos Beltran as their manager, but as the reports were flying and this guy says something, oh, the rumors are true. So Beltron resigns and 
they had to find a new manager and Rojas, I guess, next man up. And it was a little unfair. You know, Beltran couldn't even have a team meeting with the Mets. And that was in January 2020. And Rojas gets thrown right into the fire, has no experience as a manager before, I believe. I think he was a coach on the Mets in 2019, just a coach, not like a hitting coach. But it was he just got thrown right into the fire. 2020, I mean, it's still 60-game season. I mean, do you really want to put much blame into that? It was a shortened season. It caught everybody off guard. Players were opting out, this and that. And in 2021... In the offseason, the Mets trade for Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco, and their fans went nuts thinking they're winning the World Series and this and that. They were celebrating at spring training, giving a preview how they were planning to celebrate it. They ended up winning the World Series in 2021, and I just thought that was foolish and stupid. You don't do that. You know how you practice celebrating on the field? You win. You don't need to do that in spring training. The season opening night, he pulled Jacob DeGrom early in Philadelphia, and the Mets bullpen ended up collapsing, and the Phillies won that game. And Met fans should have knew that game that night, it was going to be a long season, and Rojas could potentially lose his job. But, you know, you always look back at a season for any team, and you think of a loss that sets back that team's season. And the game that comes to my mind that set the Mets season back was the game right before the All-Star break when they had that ninth inning collapse against the Pittsburgh Pirates. And at the time, they were still first place in the NL East. And they ended up losing that game to the Pirates. And... You should have knew right there they were about to collapse. But I think every, almost everybody knew the Mets season was done when they got swept by the Phillies in Philadelphia. And the highlight was Zach Wheeler throwing a complete game shutout against his former team. But, you know, they, they couldn't bring him back. You know, oh, it's too much money. You know, the Wilpons. Oh, the Wilpons. Lovely Wilpons. They can't pay him. Nah, let's not pay him. Although Taiwan Walker had a really good first half of the year. He was an all-star. But it was unfortunate he couldn't get back to to his old self, it seemed, you know. Speaking of that, and another thing with Rojas, I think it was the Giants game when he's starting. And the first two runners got on in the seventh inning, I'm pretty sure it was. And Rojas took him out. But the runners got on base and it wasn't even his fault. And Walker gets taken out by Rojas. And the floodgates open with the Mets bullpen, and that was another moment for Rojas when you knew that this guy is simply not the right man for the job. I don't know who the Mets' top candidate would be for the job because I would say over 90% of the fan base wanted Joe Girardi hired in the 2019 offseason, but obviously Girardi ended up going to Philadelphia where he has not had much success either in Philadelphia in his two years there so far. Maybe Buck Showalter or Bruce Bochy, I, I, I don't know. Maybe Beltron gets another opportunity. If Alex Cora can come back after only one year, 
not managing the Red Sox. Maybe Beltron gets another chance. AJ Hintz got another chance with the Detroit Tigers. I think the Tigers, if they get some young players and they keep their core, and sooner or later they may have to let Miguel Cabrera go, I think the Tigers could be a contender, but maybe not now, maybe in a couple of years. So I don't know how the Mets are going to approach this manager search, but it's going to be very interesting to see. Obviously, I have to talk about something in New York involving me being from New Jersey. Moving on, this was voted on on my Instagram story. I'm going to give my opinion on the top 10 worst free agent signings in NFL history. Now, I want to be clear. This is not traded. Not traded. Like, uh, you'll hear his name later. Spoiler alert. But Nick Foles getting traded to the Chicago Bears when he was originally on Jacksonville. Just being signed by a specific team. Not traded. So, with that, let's get right to it. You know, I had to consider a lot, you know. Was he supposed to be the guy? Was he overpaid? Was it too much hype around a player? There was a lot of things that went into this. So, let's kick it off with number 10. The number 10 worst free agent signing of all time. Jeff Garcia to the Cleveland Browns. Jeff Garcia was a very underappreciated quarterback when he was playing for the San Francisco 49ers. He had that big playoff comeback win against the New York Giants in 2002. And in 2004, the Browns gave him a lot of money. Four years, $25 million. You know, you looked at the quarterbacks the Browns had. Some of them, when they came back into the league in 99, you had Tim Couch, Spurgeon Wynn, Doug Peterson, And now Jeff Garcia comes here in 2004. He was supposed to make the Browns better, and he didn't. Now, this signing was so bad that he didn't even last the full season. He was cut midseason. So, Jeff Garcia to the Browns, number 10. The number 9 worst free agent signing of all time, Alvin Harper to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Alvin Harper was a really good number 2 receiver to have. When he was with the Dallas Cowboys, he had Michael Irvin on his side. He had Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith. Cowboys win their Super Bowls. And in 1995, the Buccaneers pay him four years, $10.6 million. He was supposed to be the man in Tampa Bay. But, you know, it doesn't help, granted, when you go to a team like Tampa Bay at the time who were completely incompetent, didn't know what to do, but they were building that defense up. They were. They had young Derrick Brooks, young Warren Sapp, young John Lynch, but couldn't get the offense going. In his two years with Tampa Bay, he only scored three receiving touchdowns. That's a uh, pretty bad stat, to say the least. The number eight worst free agent signing of all time, True Maine Johnson to the New York Jets. Jets signed him in 2018 Five years, $72.5 million. He had one good year with the Rams. I think it was like six to seven picks he had, whatever it was. The Rams went to the playoffs in 2017, a big part of their defense. And Trumaine Johnson was on that defense with Aaron Donald. So the Jets throw all the money at him, thinking he could fit 
in Todd Bowles' defensive system in 2018, and he got burned like a drum. He got beat like a drum, burned just not great, and only played 17 games. He was injured, bad coverage skills. I can remember this because I was there. It was week two of the regular season in 2019, and Greg Williams decided to bench him against the Cleveland Browns. I mean, that just shows you right there. Even Greg Williams knew that this guy was a bum and overpaid. The number seven worst for agent signing of all time. This is a combo. The Raiders Super Bowl MVPs. To clarify this, in Super Bowl 30, Larry Brown won Super Bowl MVP for the Dallas Cowboys. And in the following Super Bowl, Super Bowl 31, Desmond Howard won Super Bowl MVP when the Packers beat the Patriots. So, in the 96 offseason, the Raiders signed Larry Brown five years, $12.5 million. He was never a great cornerback. Yeah, he won Super Bowl MVP. He just had to show up to the game because the ball was thrown right to him by Neil O'Donnell. And how can the Raiders spend all this money on Larry Brown? Simple. How could they? He went to the worst possible situation. He went to a man-to-man defense, and he was more of a zone guy. And the next offseason, the Raiders gave Desmond Howard four years, six million. You know, he's a kickoff return guy. And he only had one season, which was a 94, where he had over 700 receiving yards. Do you really want to give that much money to a kickoff return guy? And he lasted two years in Oakland. Raiders Super Bowl MVPs, number seven. The number six, worst free agent signing of all time. Neil O'Donnell to the New York Jets. After the 1995 season, the Jets were trying to replace an aging, beat-up former MVP quarterback that couldn't play anymore. And that was Boomer Esiason. So they dumped Esiason with O'Donnell and gave O'Donnell all the money. Five years, $25 million in 1996. At the time, it was the largest free agent signing in Jets history. I mentioned in the previous signing, Neil O'Donnell threw, threw bad picks to Larry Brown. But he did take, or he was part of the Steelers, Super Bowl team. So he loses the Super Bowl, but now he's the main guy for the Jets. I mean, at that time, New York had to do something. The team was terrible. Terrible coaching, terrible ownership with Leon Hess and Richie Kotite. You know, I think they had Bubby Brister and Frank Reich as quarterbacks too in 95. So at the time, you definitely thought it would be an upgrade. But in 96... The Jets finished 1-15, worst record in the NFL, and O'Donnell was getting getting exposed. He wasn't very mobile. He couldn't get out of the pocket. Some of his teammates even questioned his leadership and his toughness. And after the 97 season, Parcells decided to dump him. And obviously, that was a good decision because in 98 with Vinny Testaverde, the Jets go to the AFC Championship game. But I mean, in fairness... O'Donnell had nothing. He had no coaching. He had no players. But when you get paid all that money, you know, you're expected to make a jump. And obviously, he didn't. The number five worst free agent signing of all time. Namdi Asamoah to the Philadelphia Eagles. Five years, 60 million 
in 2011 for a cornerback was big money. He was an all-pro cornerback with the Oakland Raiders. The Eagles in 2010 win the division, and this was the dream team. Michael Vick, LaShawn McCoy, Deshaun Jackson, Brent Selleck, and they feel that they're missing a, a key piece. So they give Namdi Asamoah all this money, and in 2011, they failed. They didn't even get to go to the playoffs, and the whole two years he spent there was just a disaster. In 2012, he was getting beat. Fans were calling him out. In his final year in 2012, the Eagles were, I think, 4-12 and or 5-11. and Andy Reid got fired, and Asamoah was out. That was a big signing that had big hope and failed miserably. The number four worst free agent signing of all time, Brock Osweiler to the Houston Texans. Brock Osweiler had a few nice games for the Denver Broncos in relief for Peyton Manning in 2015. He's able to sell himself, hey, I saved the Broncos season. I learned from an all-time quarterback. So the Texans pay him in 2016, four years 72 million and the whole thing was a disaster the playoff game against new england was one of the worst performances i've ever seen the texans were expected to make this huge jump you know at that time the texans haven't had a steady quarterback since matt schaub and they gave brock osweiler all the money and he was gone, I think, in two years. Horrible, horrible signing. Osweiler, number four on the list. The number three worst free agent signing of all time, Nick Foles to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Four years, $88 million, with $45 million guaranteed, even if he only played one year, which was in 2019 when they signed him. Well, who would have thought he would only play one year for Jacksonville? He did. Nick Foles... We obviously know the story. Carson Wentz gets hurt in 2017. Foles still takes the Eagles to the promised land and wins the Super Bowl for them against the Patriots. And in 2019, in replace of Wentz, because I think Wentz was hurt, the Eagles win a playoff game against the Bears, and they come up just short against the Saints in the divisional playoffs. So here's Foles selling himself. And the Jaguars pay him all that money, and he's hurt. He can't play that great. Gardner Minshew looked better than him, and he only started four games in Jacksonville and went 0-4 as a starter. The number two worst free agent signing of all time, Le'Veon Bell to the New York Jets. Le'Veon Bell was simply spectacular in Pittsburgh. His 2017 season was absolutely huge. Steelers were really one win away from having home field advantage due to a controversial call with Jesse James and the Steelers get upset by the Jaguars in the divisional playoff and Le'Veon holds out. He wanted more money. He wanted to be the highest paid player in the NFL or highest paid running back or whatever it was and he sits out. The Steelers find success with James Conner so he sits out all of 2018 and lands a big contract with the New York Jets, four years, $52 million, 
as incompetent as he was as a head coach, Adam Gase was probably right about this decision that he didn't want Le'Veon Bell. He was actually right about that. But the Jets pay him four years, $52 million, and does not work out. We thought with Le'Veon Bell in New York, the Jets could take that next step with Sam Darnold in year two. Robbie Anderson was starting to break out. Chris Herndon had a pretty decent rookie season, so we thought Le'Veon to the Jets could work out, and it simply didn't. He only had four touchdowns in his tenure with the Jets in 17 games. And in 2020, he only played two games and rushed for only 74 yards. And the number one worst free agent signing of all time, anyone, repeat, anyone, to Washington. This list goes on and on and on because Washington signed guys that did not pan out. I can go right on down the list here. Deion Sanders, Bruce Smith, Jeff George, Adam Archuleta, you know, Steve Spurrier was here. He tried to bring in his Florida Gators, you know, Danny Werfel, Jockez Green, and Chris Doring. He just wanted to make it his fun and gun offense. Antoine randall Dana Stubblefield, Jeremiah Trotter, Ryan Fitzpatrick is now hurt in Washington. Although the big signing that was absolutely horrible was Albert Hainsworth. $100 million he got. Dan Snyder got absolutely nothing. All you have to do is watch him lay on the ground at FedEx Field when he's supposed to be chasing Michael Vick and Vick throws a touchdown. The only three I remember that was worthy of good free agent signs in Washington was Pierre Garçon, D'Angelo Hall, and, the Lon- and London Fletcher. London Fletcher, I do think, is a Hall of Famer if he hasn't been put in yet. D'Angelo Hall... Could be borderline Hall of Famer. He did have four picks in a game in 2010. So that is my top 10 worst free agent signings in NFL history. I will repeat them once again. Jeff Garcia to the Browns at 10. Number nine, Alvin Harper to the Buccaneers. Number eight, Trumaine Johnson to the Jets. Number seven, the Raiders, two Super Bowl MVPs, Larry Brown and Desmond Howard. Number six, Neil O'Donnell to the New York Jets. Number five, Namdi Asamoah to the Philadelphia Eagles. Number four, Brock Osweiler to the Houston Texans. Number three, Nick Foles to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Number two, Le'Veon Bell to the New York Jets. And number one, anyone in Washington. So, that is all the time I have for episode five of the Jake's Takes podcast here at Oklahoma State University. Can't believe this is already the fifth episode that I've done here in Stillwater, but I'm very happy to be doing this and to be doing it for anybody that listens. Jake Ferrer here in Stillwater, signing off.